This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 427. This podcast is brought to you by Lagoon Sleep. With Lagoon Pillows, you'll fall asleep faster because you're matched with a pillow that'll be most comfortable for your sleep position and body type. Go to lagoonsleep.com MTA and take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match. Use the code MTA for 15% off your first purchase. That's lagoonsleep.com MTA. And thanks to Sidekick, makers of muscle scraping tools that'll help your hips, your quads, your feet, whatever's bothering you. They are must-haves in your injury prevention toolbox. And we recommend the My Personal PT Bundle. Just go to SidekickTool.com slash MTA for 15% off. SidekickTool.com slash MTA. Thanks to Oladance Open Earbuds. They have 360-degree superior sound, but they never enter the ear, so there's no ear fatigue. Plus, you never lose track of what's happening around you. Visit Oladance.com and use the promo code MTA20 to save 20%. That's Oladance.com. Hey, hey, welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we inspire and empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Stephen Lane, author of the book, Long Run to Glory, the story of the greatest marathon in Olympic history and the women who made it happen. And you know where to go to find all the back podcast episodes, training plans, all the stuff to help you accomplish your goal in the marathon. Find out how to become a member of the Academy when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So it is currently just beautiful outside this last week, and Angie, you just came straight off the trail into the office to record this podcast. Well, I wouldn't say straight. There was a detour to the shower first. (laughs) Yes. A detour I haven't made yet today. I noticed. (laughs) (laughs) You know when you have like your running shirts, they just don't smell the same after you (laughs) sweat in them a couple times. So how many miles did you get in? My sister and I did a little over eight miles on the Appalachian Trail, and I probably could have stayed out longer if I had brought water and fueling with me. <laughs> well, this episode's a lot of fun because we are looking at a very important period of history in our sport. Before we jump into that conversation with our special guest today, Angie, what's going on out there in MTA land? Yeah, we've got lots of people out there running races and accomplishing their goals. We'd like to say congratulations to Dan. He ran the Hartford Marathon in a time of 3 hours, 29 minutes, 25 seconds, and he came away with a 13-minute PR. He is a coaching client of MTA coach Athena. Nice. Also, congratulations to Adrienne, a member. She ran the Cape Cod Marathon in 3 hours, 33 minutes, and 55 seconds, and she came away with a 15-minute PR. This comes from Amy, who works with Coach Kristen. She says, the Sleeping Bear Marathon is completed. The weather was bad, very windy and raining, and the course was hilly and difficult. It was tough to get out there, but so beautiful and not bad at all once I started running. I ended up with a 45-second PR over the Detroit Marathon last year, so I'm very excited about that. Very thankful to MTA Coach Kristen for all of her help this year. I know how she feels if you look outside and it's windy and cold and raining. It is difficult to get out there. That's for sure. Yeah, sometimes just getting out the door is the hardest part. Yeah, you probably have fun once you get out there and start running. Or maybe not. (laughs) Could go either way. But you finished. That's what matters. (laughs) That's right. 
Um, this comes from Margot, and she says, I finished the Cologne Marathon last weekend with a time of 4.47 and a seven-minute PR. Thank you, Coach Abby, for the great training once again. It's been a week now, and I've already set sight on the next marathons. Uh, this comes from Luis. He says, so yesterday I completed my 65K Ultra with 8,200 feet of ascent. It actually turned out to be 68 kilometers. The nasty weather we had in the previous two days made the last 20 kilometers miserable and muddy. But I came in 25th out of 71 runners and I'm very proud of myself, specifically because of my age compared to the youth around me. Thank you to MTA coach Henry as without him, honestly, I don't know how I would train well and alone to complete it. Yeah, man, he's kicking butt. Congrats on that, Luis. And that was uh, at the Azores Bravos Trail Ultra in Portugal. And that was a uh, 65K. Well, just congrats to everyone out there running races and becoming a better version of yourself. Quick blurb here for a fellow podcaster, because we know it's hard to wait for the next episode of the MTA podcast to arrive. But if you're hungry for more tips on training and nutrition, for more inspirational stories and interviews with authors of running books and also race recaps, go and subscribe to the Marathon Running Podcast. It's actually hosted by another husband and wife team, Letty and Ryan. We actually met Letty at the Boston Marathon. That's right. She's really a great person. Um, Letty and Ryan are not professional runners. They're a couple um, who are an attorney and a doctor who are running enthusiasts and just love everything about the running community. Letty is still chasing PRs while Ryan enjoys traveling to destination marathons. Sounds like me. <laughs> That's right. Their weekly podcast was started back in 2020 during the pandemic as a labor of love for running, and they currently do four episodes per month. Their website has also become a platform for running news. Again, that is the Marathon Running Podcast. Yeah, so just a quick teaser from a recent episode. In light of the currently set new records and speculations about doping, they managed to interview someone at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. Also, uh, with New York City coming up, uh, they have an episode that talks about everything you need to know about racing the New York City Marathon. So if you like our podcast, I know you'll like Letty and Ryan. Find them over at MarathonRunningPodcast.com or look for the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, in today's episode, we're talking with Stephen Lane, author of the book, Long Run to Glory. It's about the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon. It's a historic year in the Olympics because it was the first time that women were allowed to run the marathon. So in this conversation, you're going to hear why it took so long and who were the visionary women who helped change things and what exactly went down at the 1984 Olympic Marathon. It was an epic race. Plus, you'll hear about the New York City Marathon and how this race got off the ground and grew into the behemoth that it is today. So a lot of great stuff, history that every runner should know. Angie, what can we tell people about our guest, uh, Stephen Lane? Well, he has been a longtime runner. He has coached track and field for 25 years. He's also a history and economics teacher at Concord Carlisle High School in Massachusetts. He holds a degree in political science from Williams College and a master's in education and lives in Concord, Massachusetts with his family. Yeah, so this is a really interesting history. And you probably have heard of some of these ladies like Bobby Gibb, Catherine Switzer, uh, Greta Weitz. And of course, the winner of the 84 Olympics, probably not a spoiler alert by now, <laughs> uh, Joan Benoit Samuelson. Just went by Joan Benoit back then. So yeah, it was quite a journey just to get this event in the Olympics and quite an awesome showdown on race day. Here's our conversation with Stephen Lane. Well on my way, well on my way, 
Well, we are on the podcast now with Stephen Lane, author of the book, Long Run to Glory. And he's joining us from uh, Massachusetts near Boston. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, we both really enjoyed the book, Long Run to Glory. And I do enjoy history. And mm. this is like such important history in our sport, history that I think every runner should know. So let's start with this. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you were inspired to write this book. I remember the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon this way. I was 13 and and my family, we weren't runners, like it wasn't a running family, but we were all big sports fans. And so if the Olympics were on TV, we were watching. And I just remember waking up that Sunday morning and walking downstairs and the race was on. And I, I just have this image in my head still of uh, Joan Benoit on the the freeway all by herself. You know, it's this massive like eight lanes of freeway and there's this, you know, tiny figure uh, and there's sort of waves of heat coming off of the uh, off of the concrete. And I just thought that was incredible. And, and so, you know, I sat down and watched the rest of the race. And at the time, I didn't know much about running at all. Uh, and so that was sort of my introduction to uh, elite level marathoning on, you know, on any scale. You know, that image or that idea of the marathon is just, it's always been with me. So I, I wanted to write a book about the 84 Olympics and I'm a runner, I've coached running forever, I'm a meet director. So I, I wanted to go back to that marathon and, and there's just so much more behind the marathon itself, you know, the, the events leading up to it. So I thought it'd be just a wonderful story. And I must say, I, I kept thinking somebody has to have done this already. It's such a <laughs> I'm like, oh, how's no one written this already? So it was sort of lucky, I guess, in that way. Um, it's just been something that's been with me for almost 40 years now. Wow, that's really neat. And you laid it out so well in the book, really put it on a timeline in a greater historical context, how you build to the 1984 Women's Olympics by going back and, you know, talking about why women weren't allowed to compete in track and field in the Olympics. So maybe, you know, you can start with that for our listeners. Why did it take until 1984 for women to be able to run an Olympic marathon? One of the comments I get most often when I, you know, I say this is a book and the first women's Olympic marathon was 1984. People are like, really? Wow, that's so recent. I'm like, I know what happened. And there's so much going on. And if you really want to go back, the Olympics were intended to be kind of this, this citadel, this celebration of, of manly virtues, you know, fortitude and will and endurance and all these things that I think the men of the time wanted to pretend were unique to men because it, it, it allowed them to maintain sort of their status uh, above women at a time when in a lot of ways that status was crumbling. You know, it, it's not a coincidence that this is the same time period as as the, the right to vote movement, the first wave of, of feminist thought. Uh, is happening. Women are starting to enter the uh, the business world. So are we talking like late 1800s when the modern Olympic movement started, right? Exactly. It's late 1800s. And so originally the Olympics were conceived of as, as solely for men. And then feminine events like aesthetical events was it were they used uh for women uh such as like archery for some reason but golf swimming uh, things like that women gradually were allowed to join the olympic movement in those the only reason they were allowed to participate in track and field at all was they sort of 
forced their way in, I guess is the best way to put it. This woman, Alice Milliot, uh, who's a, who, she was a French rower and then athletics administrator, thought that women should have full participation in the Olympics. And so she wrote the head of the International Olympic Committee, Pierre de Coubertin, and asked for women's track and field to be included in the Olympics. Uh, he said no. She wrote again. He said no. So she started her own Women's Olympics, and it was a huge success. It was a huge hit. Uh, and the first one was outside of Paris in 1922, uh, and the second one was in 1926, and it drew tens of thousands of fans. It, it drew royalty. And, and so at that point, suddenly the Olympics, the men's Olympics movement had a problem because they didn't want to rival Olympic Games competing for attention. And so they, they realized the only way to defeat this rival was to bring women's athletics, women's track and field into the Olympics. And so, you know, it was sort of a lesson that I think uh, activists in sport have taken uh, throughout history is that. Um, you can't hope that the institutions in power do things for the right reasons. Um, you have to sort of appeal to their self-interest and, and make it necessary for them to move. And I, and I think the first women's Olympic movement led by Alice Milia uh, certainly did that. And so that was 1928, uh, the first year that women were allowed to participate in track and field. But the longest distance that they were allowed to run was what, 800 meters? the 800 meters. Exactly. I described that race briefly in, in the book. It, it was one of the greatest races in the Olympics. It, in the final, um, the, the lead women took off at an incredible pace. And, and, and the reason was that, that they knew there were a couple of women who had uh, absolutely deadly finishing kicks in the race. So they're trying to burn out the finishing kicks. So they, they took off at under world record pace, trying to hold these two women off it it ended up not working. One of them, Lena Radke from Germany, outkicked everybody rather comfortably, frankly, and and uh, and one going away. Uh, but Inga Gensel, one of the women who set the early pace, held on for silver. And Kinoe Hitomi of Japan, another one of the the women uh, with a, with a tremendous kick, finished third for bronze. All three of them broke the old world record, um, and and those records stood for for quite some time. And so it, it, it should have been this moment like, wow, this, you know, this is what women's athletics could be. Instead, there were fabricated media reports that, you know, half of the field had collapsed at the finish, that the <laughs> women weren't able to finish at all. They had fake news even back then. It, one of the guys who wrote about it wasn't even there. Um, there were nine women in the final. He wrote that six of the 11 women didn't finish. Uh, or collapse. So it was, it was absolutely fake news. In fact, it was much easier to do fake news then because it wasn't on television. Uh, there was a newsreel, but that didn't really get very far. So yeah, absolute fake news. But the end result of that was women's track and field was almost removed from the Olympics entirely. The compromise was to keep events for women at uh, 200 meters and under. And wow. that remained until 1960. 1960, the women's 800 meters came back into the Olympics. And 1972, the women's 1500 meters, almost a mile, uh, was added to the Olympics. And then nothing. And then nothing until 1984 in the marathon. So it's a, <laughs> there isn't a great answer why. 
uh, I, I always wonder, like, why do they care so much that they, they needed to keep women out of these events? And I, and I do keep going back to, uh, you know, this idea that it was supposed to be about, you know, male virtues of will and strength and fortitude. And, and to allow women to participate in the longer events was to admit that those weren't solely male virtues, that, that women had those in spades uh, as well. So fragile male, male ego, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Wasn't it also conventional wisdom at the time that women couldn't run that far because their uterus would fall out or something? Yeah. (laughs) Doctors were saying that. Yeah. The prevailing medical opinion was that it was bad for women's health. Even in 1980, when the push to get the marathon in the Olympics is on, both the uh, International Amateur Athletic Federation and the International Olympic Committee need their medical commissions to weigh in and and say that it's okay for women to run marathons, which obviously. So. <laughs> and by that time, lots of women were doing it yeah. and attracting sponsors and money and things were getting so large that it's going to happen with or without the Olympics. So the Olympics better capitalize on the, the momentum. Yeah, there was a fear, I think, on the part of the International Olympic Committee that marathoning could become like tennis or golf, uh, or for that matter, soccer, where the the most prestigious events exist outside the Olympics. And, And golf, I don't think, is in the Olympics anymore, but it used to be at one point. Tennis is in the Olympics, but I think you know, honestly, if you ask most players, they would say, you know, give me a U.S. Open or a Wimbledon title over an Olympic title. Soccer for sure, right? Like you want to win the World Cup over the Olympics. And so I think there was a fear that if the IOC didn't get the women's marathon in, not only women's marathoning, but then men's marathoning might go that same route. And, you know, who knows, the majors like New York or Boston or, or London would become more significant victories in the Olympic marathon. Follow the money, always. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's shift back a little bit to what you call the pioneer era in women's distance running. And you kind of categorize that as 1966 to 1972. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were just some really amazing women who were breaking ground in the marathon and kind of started with the Boston Marathon because that was the oldest marathon in the country and the most prestigious. And of course, it was a men's only race. Yeah, it was a men's only race. And, and, you know, the other kind of striking thing is that it, it was huge at the time, by which we mean 500 people ran it. Uh, and and that, <laughs> oh, my God, it's just unbelievable now with tens of thousands at all the majors. Uh, and so um, Bobby Gibb, she was a, a local girl. Um, her parents lived in a suburb outside of Boston. Uh, saw the Boston Marathon with her father in 1964, and and she was just struck. It was like these are my people. This is what I need to do. And she says she she didn't even notice that they were all men or anything like that. It's just like wow, all these people running, and and she was a free spirited kid, and and would just she would just go out and run in the in the forests around uh, around her neighborhood. She took a cross-country trip where she would drive for a while, stop and just run for hours and, and then camp in fields. And, and so it, you know, it never occurred to Bobby that this was something she couldn't do uh, until she applied to run. And she got a note back from the president of the Boston Athletic Association saying that you know, the longest distance approved for women by the Amateur Athletic Union was 2.5 miles and that 
you know, he personally didn't think women were capable of running a <laughs> marathon. And so he didn't want to have the liability issue of a woman running uh, a marathon. Um, now, it's worth pointing out that women had already been running marathons here and there. And I would compare Bobby Gibbs' run in the marathon to something like Columbus's expedition to the United States, right? There had, there had been Europeans that had landed, not the United States, to the Americas. Like there had been Europeans which had landed in the Americas uh, in the centuries before, but that didn't really change anything. When, when Columbus landed in the Americas, it, it created a revolution, for better or for worse, um, in, in relations between the continents. And, and so even though there's this chain of, of women who would run marathons even as early as I think the 1920s, um, Bobby, when Bobby Gibb ran Boston in 1966, and she did it without approval, she just she hid behind a, a forsythia bush and jumped out when the race started, and just ran along with everybody. There was a media storm, and they couldn't believe it, and and she was surrounded by by reporters at the end of it who wanted to know, you know, why she did it, you know, <laughs> did her husband know? She <laughs> things like that. She, I think, is responsible for launching the modern women's marathoning movement because she was such an inspiration in some ways to women. And so Bobby Gibb ran in 66. Uh, Catherine Switzer ran in 1967. And that's there the famous pictures of Catherine Switzer, the race director, Jock uh, Semple, um, trying to take the number off of her chest. And those pictures, man, you talk about a picture worth a thousand words, like those pictures kind of told an amazing story. And, and from that point onward, I think marathoning for women was it's more than just running, right? It, it was sort of a political statement of independence, of, of liberty. Uh, and so it just grew from, from those, two, those two women running in 66 and 67 uh, into a, just an unstoppable movement. Yeah, there are some details to those stories that I... <laughs> didn't know prior to reading your book. I think you write that when Bobby Gibb jumped in the race, that the men running the race saw her and they thought it was neat. Yeah. And so that shows, you know, fellow runners uh, weren't the problem. It was the the rules and the bureaucracy. Uh, but her fellow runners, you know, they were cool with it. And then, like you mentioned, that iconic photograph where Jock Simple tries to snatch the bib off of Catherine Switzer. Of course, her boyfriend at the time like body checks the guy <laughs> and he goes flying in, into a heap. And then you were saying, too, that he wasn't anti-woman or even anti-Kay Switzer. He just was such a stickler for the rules and was mad that she had gotten a bib uh, in an unauthorized way. They actually later became friends, I guess. Yeah, they have. And, and I, I mean, I, I do not want to defend Jock Semple uh, attacking Switzer at all. But yeah, what's interesting about Jock is that, uh, well, Bobby Gibb had gone to see Jock after she ran and they had a great conversation and, and, and Jock had no problem with Bobby running because she wasn't an official runner. She didn't have the number. Hmm. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. The rules were so important to Jock that, that, you know, the race was a, was a men's only race. And so for Catherine Switzer to be running it with a number was a violation of the rules 
maybe they risked uh, losing their sanction. Maybe they, you know, runners could become ineligible because they participated in a race with women. There, there were some reasons to justify his anger, but certainly not attacking uh, Catherine Switzer. But Jock had a temper. And he, uh, two years previous, he had nearly been arrested for assault mid-race uh, by the police in, in one of the towns along the route. Uh, a couple years before that, he had uh, he had tried to kick a poodle that wandered onto the court. And oh man! Slipped and let, he jock landed in a mud puddle. Um, and uh, a year or so before that, he he had you know he had shoved somebody angrily and threatened to punch another guy. So, point is that Jock had a tremendous temper, and it got you know he got really stressed out on race day, and yes, he got a little bit violent, and so. It, it wasn't directed so much toward Catherine Switzer as a woman as it was directed toward somebody who was breaking the rules and violating the sanctity of his race. And and so, yes, he attacks Switzer. In the, and so those pictures are something special. Um, Catherine, to her credit, uh, in 1972, I believe, wrote a letter to Jock saying, I understand now where you're coming from. And I understand that I put you in a bad position by, by running with a number. I didn't, I never meant to do that. I love running and all the rest. And, and I think to, you know, to jock the Boston marathon was such a sacred event. And once he understood that Switzer loved Boston the way he did, they got each other, right? I mean, they're both runners. They, they you know, it, it stands to reason that they would come to an understanding. But yeah, they they got each other. They became friends. Uh, and I think that's kind of the story behind the story of those photos, which is, yeah. is sort of nice to know, I guess. And then uh, Switzer, she is a tremendous leader and organizer as well. So really? what, what happened after this, you know, and how does she bring awareness of women's marathoning to the world? So you've had the pleasure of speaking with her, and I, I got to interview her a number of times and, and had dinner with her and her husband once. And, and the one thing I'm struck by her as a person is how analytical she is and how quick she is to sort of understand the, the essence of something and figure out maybe how to, how to make something work. Uh, so, for example, when I explained to her the book that I was writing, she's like, uh-huh, okay. Well, you need to talk to this person, and and when it's done, and you're looking to publish it, you know you, these are the things you need to do, and and it, it was such a, it, I don't know, her grasp of everything is so quick, and the way her mind worked was really impressive, and that same analytical ability, I think, she brought to the marathon, and and she says that from the moment Jock attacked her, like partly she's like almost hyperventilating in fear, but partly she starts thinking like, why aren't there more women running? Why isn't there like an international sort of uh, event for women? Why not the Olympics? And so the wheels, uh, as she explains that the wheels started turning during the race. And, and you know, she says, I, I started that race as a girl and I came out of it as a woman. Mm -hmm. And she saw a path uh, that needed following, which was provide more opportunities for women to run um, so that eventually there is a place for them in, in all the big races and eventually the Olympics. Her life took some circuitous paths, but eventually, yeah, she came back to that. And, and starting in uh, 1979, 
uh, excuse me, 1978, she launches a a, uh, a marathon for Avon Cosmetics. It's, you know, with Switzer running it, it's not surprising. It was wildly successful. And then uh, from that launches a series of runs for Avon, uh, the Avon International Running Circuit, which culminates every year in the Avon International Marathon. And the corporate money that Avon brought to women's marathoning is part of the reason that the International Olympic Committee started to think, okay, we, we need to get this into our, uh, into our Olympics. It can't stay outside the Olympics. And so, yeah, she was instrumental, not just in helping further the pioneering movement of women's marathoning, but creating kind of the corporate backing that helped grow the marathon movement into something the IOC couldn't ignore. She was great that way. I have a new respect for Avon. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's so funny how by the 1970s, running had changed, right? Like in the 1920s, women who ran, well, it was going to turn you into a man, you know, it was going to make you, you know, unlovable, unattractive, your uterus was going to fall out, all these things. But then by the 70s, like cosmetic companies are behind it full bore. They're like, this will make you more beautiful. (laughs) Exactly. It's incredible. So um, yeah, so but Avon, I don't know a ton about Avon, but I, I did you know research them a little bit for this book, and and my sense is that they saw a great opportunity, but their heart was in the right place too. They thought this is great for women, so we ought to do it, and we're going to make a lot of money doing this too. So, so I think yeah, I I thought they did a great job. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our awesome new sponsor, Lagoon Sleep. We're so happy to have them as a sponsor because their pillows are fantastic. They're made by runners for runners. Angie, I know sleep is one of your favorite topics, favorite activities. (laughs) So important for recovery. And now you have your pillow dialed in because you went through and took this quiz on the Lagoon website. Yes, I chose what's called the hippo pillow. All their pillows have animal names to them. So I've got the hippo, have been using it for a couple months now. As Trevor knows, I'm very particular about my pillow because I get neck pain really easily to the point where I pack my own pillow whenever I go on trips. Like even if I'm flying, I will sacrifice space in my suitcase to take my pillow. I, so I did note that the Lagoon Hippo Pillow rolls up really nicely, <laughs> really compactly, so I can take it with me whenever I go. Um, and they can also be easily adjusted, so you'll be able to perfectly align your neck and back to help eliminate aches and pains. Um, so you get a pillow that's comfortable for your sleep position and your body type, and if you're anything like me, probably you've ha- you had your old pillow for way too long. Um, it's one of those things that does need to be replaced on a regular basis. And some of us have had our pillows for, you know, like over a decade <laughs> and wondering why we wake up with pain every morning. Yeah. So do your head a favor. Go over to lagoonsleep.com slash MTA. Take their awesome two minute sleep quiz to find your match. And you can save 15% with the code MTA. Use the code MTA for 15% off over at lagoonsleep.com. Hey, thanks also to our sponsor, Sidekick Tools. They make muscle scraping tools for runners so you can heal from your injury quicker and get back to doing what you love. They've been featured by Men's Health, Canadian Running Magazine, Outside, and the MTA Podcast. Of course. (laughs) Actually, uh, I see a lot of content from Molly Seidel. Uh, They sponsor her, and she is scraping with her Eclipse and her Echo. Yeah, that's right. I was just using the Eclipse on my left foot the other day where I have a little bit of trouble with plantar fasciitis at times. And I notice if I get on it right away with the muscle scraper, 
it helps prevent that tightness and that you know, pain that you start to get. So they are very effective. I first saw muscle scraping tools at my physical therapist's office. So now you can have the benefit of professional grade recovery tools at home where you can grab them before or after your run and get on that area and not let it get to the point, you know, hopefully when you need to go see a physical therapist. They've got over 80,000 happy customers, five-star reviews. See why we love it. Go to SidekickTool.com slash MTA. You can get 15% off with your first order. SidekickTool.com slash MTA. So speaking of, you know, a person who really brought a lot of attention and was in it to expand the sport and kind of bring marathoning to the masses, you know, we're moving into like the New York City Marathon when that was founded and Fred LeBeau, yeah, yeah. Um, such an interesting person. Talk about him. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know where to start. And, and you know, he was a Holocaust survivor first. I, he, I mean, he was incredible. And what's funny about this is that every person I interviewed about Fred, like, this is kind of how they responded. They're like, gosh, I don't even know where to begin with Fred. He was such a larger than life figure. But yes, his. His family was uh, on the run from the Germans uh, and then the Soviet Union, and he escaped and was kind of wandering around Europe. He claims that for a while he was smuggling diamonds from the continent into London uh, to make a living. And then he, he lands in New York in the 50s and, and starts working in a garment factory. Um, Pretty soon he's owning a garment factory. Pretty soon he's running a huge business. Um, and he, so he just, I mean, he had this irrepressible energy and also a, a real competitive instinct. And so originally, like he's throwing all his time into this business, but um, but for recreation, he's playing tennis. But tennis is horrible for him because he he gets so anxious and worked up about matches. Um, it's giving him ulcers. Like it's, it's not fun. He wants to win so badly. And, and my sense is he probably wasn't that great at tennis, but... Um, <laughs> So he, he just desperately wants to win. And so he would get all worked up waiting for a match and, and then sometimes wouldn't even show up to the matches because he was so nervous. Um, and then his doctor says, well, maybe you should try running because if you're fitter than your opponent on a tennis court, you know, you might outlast him. And so he starts running and never goes back to tennis. It's running from then on. It's like he he found his thing. He found the, uh, the thing that gave him happiness and joy and a little bit of calm. And so he threw himself wholeheartedly into running and, and soon discovered marathoning. And like Switzer, I mean, he's very different from Switzer, but like Switzer, he seemed very analytical. And so in the middle of running his first marathon, he realizes we can do this a lot better. We can make this bigger. We can bring more people to it. Um, and so his first marathon, um, <laughs> it's not very fast and it's in the Bronx and he decides we, we got to do this in Manhattan and we got to do it in Central Park. And so eventually he, he does create the first New York City Marathon in Central Park. And Fred is, he's part huckster. He's, I don't know if you've seen the musical Music Man, but, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of a scam artist, but, <laughs> but he's delivering too because it's, you know, he's, he's making these races happen. But he sort of, he promises big and then figures out the details later. And my sense of Fred, uh, who is deceased, uh, obviously, but my sense of Fred is that even if he kind of angered people or stepped on toes along the way, he was nearly impossible to stay mad at uh, just because he was so positive and, and, and such a cheerleader for running that if you cared about running, 
he could make you care more and, and he could make you do things to help make his races bigger and better that you probably wouldn't want to do otherwise. Uh, and, and so the big city marathons today, this idea of this huge spectacle, that's not just a race for serious runners, but something that's fun and everybody's involved and it's got huge sponsors. Like that's all because of Fred. That's what he wanted running to be was this, this giant community party that, yeah, at the, at, at the top end, people are running super fast still, but it's this thing where everybody can get something out of the race. And, and that vision I think is Fred's more than anyone's. And so if Gibb and Switzer are kind of the originators of the women's running movement, uh, Lebo is the originator of big road races the way we think of them now. He's the guy who made them the party on feet, I guess is the best way to think about it. Which is the way we see the marathon in a big sense today. You know, we expect a lot out of a marathon from the swag to the support on the course to atmosphere, the finish line. Not too many decades ago, marathons were a very stripped back affair. You know, you like didn't expect aid out on the course. He really is responsible for taking it to that next level, that celebration of running, so to speak. Yeah. You know, he said race directors need to be social directors as much as anything. And and one of his colleagues said that, you know, Fred made the city a character in the story. Right. And, um, you know, any, so if you think about coverage of any modern big city marathon, that's part of it. Right. They're talking to fans on the street corners and all of that. And and that's part of Fred's vision. And partly, you know, it's his competitive vision. We've got to be the biggest and best. But partly it's his sense of we're all this. This is all one big community. Let's let's use the marathon as a focus to bring everybody together. And, and boy, did he do it. I love the story of how he got Greta Weitz to run the marathon. You know, like it was kind of an unlikely tale, really. You know, it wasn't something that she necessarily wanted to do. And I think that's such a great example of who he was and how he actually moved marathoning forward for women, too. Yeah, let's start with who, who was Greta Weitz. <laughs> so, well, okay, at the time, so Greta Weitz runs the... Uh, New York City Marathon in 1978. At the time, she is the greatest track and field runner in in Norwegian history for women. She holds like every national record that matters. But, you know, again, to go back to the beginning of our discussion, right, she's running in like the European Championships and the Olympic Championships at the time when the, the 1500 is the longest event for women. And she's very good, but she's she never makes an Olympic final uh, and she's getting beaten by the, you know, the Soviets and East Germans. And she's so frustrated. Um, she's ready to retire. She's like, I'm, I'm done with this thing. And her husband and one of her friends kind of convince her, eh, well, you should try a marathon first. So they settle on New York as a marathon to try. And the, the marathon organizers are happy to bring Greta over to run. Um, they'll pay for her plane ticket. She says she won't do it unless they also pay for her husband, Jack, to fly over. And and New York City Marathon policy was strict at that point. No spouses. We're not paying for, you know, family vacation. <laughs> um, and so um, the, the elite athlete director tells Greta, no, we, we're not going to do that. And it's it's literally like it's it's less than two weeks before the race. And Fred sees her name and he's like, oh, hey, yeah, let's get her over here. And they're like, but she won't come unless Jack comes. And he's like, ah, fine, whatever. Because, you know, Fred's just, Fred's like their rules. And then there's what Fred wants to do. And so Fred, 
you know, because he is a New York City Marathon in many ways. He just says, we'll make this happen. And his thought is not that Greta will will create any great publicity because no one in the United States really knows who she is. He doesn't think she will contend for uh, the win, but he does think she'll probably go out too fast. <laughs> and he thinks if she goes out too fast, some of the um, some of the legitimate favorites will be forced to go with her. And so maybe she'll like inadvertently pace them to a world record. That's his goal is to kind of use this track athlete as a, maybe the first pacer in a women's marathon. Because a world record is good for media headlines afterwards. Yeah, exactly. He wants, he just wants a story. He wants like, you know, whatever it is, he wants it to be world record or world's best or something like that. So in his mind, he doesn't tell Greta this at all, but in his mind, that's her job is to go out too fast and blow up and, you know. Who hasn't done that in a marathon? <laughs> so uh, so it, it's a reasonable expectation. And he's talking to her before the race and he sort of asks, so, you know, what's your training been like? What's the longest run you've done? And and she says, oh, the longest thing I've done is 12 miles. And he's like, that, that's it? Like, oh, my God. He's like, well, she might not even make halfway if, if that's the longest training one. But she ran twice a day. She ran incredibly fast every time she ran. And she had high volume. She was still doing like 100 miles. Yeah. I mean, it's insane, right? It's a lot of mileage. It's over 100 miles a week. And it's it's really fast. <laughs> and so, so off she goes in the marathon. And the thing about Greta is she is very smart and very clinical. And Fred is hoping she'll go out super fast, but that's not Greta. She, you know, she and Jack think it through and they're like, okay, here's, you know, here's where you want to be. You want to stay behind the leaders, at least for this amount of time. And she executes that plan. And suddenly the leaders are faltering and Greta just goes swooping by and nobody knows who she is. And because she was so last minute, her bib, it's just number 1173, there's no 1173 in the program because she was too late to get it to the printers. It's not like today, you know, where, you know, instant printing or whatever. So, so she's winning the New York city marathon. She's under world record pace and the announcers, all they can say is number 1173 is winning and we don't know who she is and she's about to break the world record. So it was this incredible event. Uh, she finishes and she's, you know, she's exhausted. She can barely see and she speaks excellent English, by the way, but at that level of stress, it's probably hard, but reporters are yelling questions at her. Um, and she, you know, tries to take a deep breath and, and she has to teach the reporters how to say her name and she has to tell them where she's from and, and all of that. And finally, when she's able to let go of, of her emotions, she starts cursing and screaming at her husband, Jack, and she throws her shoes at him and she says, I am never doing that again. <laughs> uh, she was so angry. Uh, because it, it hurt, you know, it hurts a lot. And, uh, and so that was Greta Weitz's first marathon. And, you know, she goes on to be the most dominant marathoner of her era. She, she wins New York nine times. She lowers the world record nine minutes over her career and she ends up winning the silver medal at the, at the Olympics. So yeah, it's quite a start. <laughs> and she was the star that Fred needed to bring money and attention to the New York City Marathon. Worldwide attention, you know, make it more about just a race in the United States too. Exactly. And, and, and I, you know, I think because she was so unknown, it was a way to generate interest again in, in you know, women's marathon. Like, you never know what's going to happen, right? Who knows who's going who's gonna to come out of the woodwork to do something great? 
you know, she's also deceased. Um, and boy, I, I wish I could have uh, spoken with her. But you speak to anybody who knew her, and, and they all talk about how kind she was and how gracious she was. And I think in interviews, uh, you know, even with the New York City Press, that really came across. And, and, you know, New Yorkers are, they pretend to be sort of, you know, tough and all this stuff. But they also like to believe they have this like heart of gold underneath. And so I think Greta really appealed to that aspect of the New Yorkers, especially. Um, She was really, she was a shy person, but she understood her role in the media circus that was Fred's Marathon. And, and so she played it well. And, and I think people kind of got that, that, that it wasn't something she loved, but she was going to do it for them. And, and so, yes, yeah, she became absolutely beloved um, and, a, and a huge star. And to this day, I think is sort of the most um, known figure in New York City Marathon history. You know, she's one of those one word, one name athletes, Greta. So mm-hmm. not to mention how huge she is in uh, Norway. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> hey, quick break to thank our sponsor, Ola Dance. They're our new favorite earbuds and we've used a lot of earbuds. What we love about Ola Dance is if you listen to a lot of audio like Angie and I do, sometimes the longer you listen, the more fatigued your ears can get. Not with these babies, though. They are truly comfortable, and they never enter your ear, so they protect against hearing loss. They have superior sound as well, and you can still stay aware of everything that's around you. Yeah, we've tried all their models, uh, except for the new one that's just coming out. They all have that excellent sound quality, like Angie's saying. Go to Oladance.com, use the code MTA20 for 20% off. Oladance.com, use the code MTA20 for 20% off. So momentum is building toward having a women's event in the marathon and the Olympics. Uh, But let's go to the 1984 games. There's this epic showdown between Greta Weitz and Joan Benoit Mm -hmm. and some other runners who were there. So kind of set the scene for us. And what was that like uh, at the Los Angeles games, 1984? You know, the LA games, I think, became this huge spectacle of red, white, and blue in America. And, you know, partly that was response to, you know, a boycott of those Olympics by the Soviet Union and, and, and the Eastern European countries. It's funny, like that, I think, offended, you know, Californians and, and Los Angeles folks. And like, all right, damn it, you're going to skip our Olympics. We're going to make this the greatest Olympics ever. So they were, I think the boycott it created even more excitement and energy in the United States for the Olympics. And so it, it became a much bigger deal and, and more people were watching on television. It's sort of a way to show their support, I think, for this is the American Olympics and we're going to make it a success. Because it was in Moscow uh, previous. 1980, sorry, yes. In 1980, it was in Moscow and the United States and, and a number of Western European uh, countries and allies boycotted that because Moscow had, had just invaded Afghanistan. Uh, and we so, would never do that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Who, who does that? Uh, <laughs> and so, yes, four years later, Moscow and, and its satellite countries boycott the Los Angeles Olympics in retaliation. So everything in the Olympics, I think, is heightened uh, because of that for people who are there. And, and they want to make those who boycott it feel like, yeah, you missed out. You missed out on a great thing. But then the marathon especially is it's an incredible, incredible event. Obviously, it's the first one ever. So it's, you know, there can only be one first ever gold medalist, right? So the stakes are pretty high. There is well-founded fear based on the events of 1928 that if it doesn't go well, you know, if, if a number of women drop out or something, it, it could set the movement back, right? Mm-hmm. That 
So there, there's kind of an unspoken agreement among all the women in there that, you know, unless you're about to die, you're finishing this race because we can't have a lot of dropouts. And, and I think, you know, it was never said, but I think all the women felt that way, that, that this is bigger than us as runners. This matters for all women everywhere that we do this well. Um, so, you know, no pressure, right? <laughs> Plus it's in the summertime in Los Angeles where it's hot. So it's, you know, it's supposed to be this really hot, hot, you know, summertime race, like in the smog. So like, yeah, it's going to be really hot. You're not going to be able to breathe, but don't drop out because that would be bad. So, <laughs> um, there's all this pressure going to the race. And then you have, you know, you have Greta Weitz who probably goes in as the favorite, um, Joan Benoit from the United States, was a world record holder, but she had injured her knee that spring. And the feeling was she maybe wasn't quite as fit as she would have been if she'd just been able to train through. So Joan Benoit is kind of the wounded lion, as it were, uh, of the race. And, and so I think people aren't as afraid of her as they are of Greta. Uh, going into the 84 Olympics, Greta had never lost a marathon she had finished, which is wow. incredible. She dropped out, I think, twice for injury, but, but had never lost a race she had finished. The others in the race, Ingrid Christensen was relatively new to the marathon, but she had just broken the world record in the 5,000 meters. She was the first, first woman to run under 15 minutes at 5,000 meters. She had beaten Greta Weitz twice that summer in shorter races. She's also from Norway. She's also from Norway, which is incredible. And so the thought is, if it's not going to be Greta, it probably will be Ingrid. She's finally proven she could beat Greta, which, as you can imagine, would be a little bit of a mental block, right? How can I be a gold medalist if I can't beat my own countrywoman? So Ingrid is thought of as as a real speed demon, the one that probably has talent that none of the other women have and maybe can win. And then there's the European champion, Rosa Moda, who, who's nowhere near as fast as the others. Her times are, aren't even close to theirs, but just has a way of, of coming up big in races. And she's tough in the heat and she's really smart. And so those four are probably the favorites. And as it happens, those are the four that were contending uh, for the medals in the end of the race. I'll just add to if anyone's curious, uh, Rosa Moda is from Portugal. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, her story is is remarkable. I mean, she, Portugal, she, you know, she had guys, you know, yelling, go home and help your mother with the dishes. And, you know, when she's out running, it's like, okay, I'm yeah. the Olympics, but, you know, this is, what, this is how you're going to respond. So it, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible field. From the day that the women's marathon was announced as part of the Olympics in 1981, every serious distance runner was pointing toward 1984 marathon. Like this is, this is our thing. There's never going to be another one. And so you've got this sort of three-year thought process and build and, and, and pressure just gradually ramping up over time. And then finally we're here. And, and Greta Weitz wakes up the day before the race and she can't move. She can barely get out of bed. Like something had seized in her back. And so mm. the favorite suddenly is thinking she can't run. She won't be able to run. And Greta being Greta says, we're not, you know, we can't tell anyone. We can't let anybody know I'm hurt. We're just going to keep this on the down low. And so they, they spend the entire day trying to fix it. She's taking, you know, muscle relaxants. She's getting massage work done and, and nothing is helping. They go to the, the warm-up track to try to jog it out, and, and she's jogging as normally as she can because she doesn't want anyone to see, like, oh, Greta's hurting. Um, so she jogs as normally as she can, but she can't do more than a couple miles. So they're starting to think, like, next morning she's not going to be able to race. 
and and one of her trainers uh, who is the the word in Norwegian is viskini or viskini. It's it's um the best thing translation I can come is like she's an expert in folk medicine. Like it, like the literal translation is like wise women ways or something like that. And so this woman who's like she's a medical trainer but also knows folk medicine tells Greta to fill up a backpack with heavy things and walk around <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> And she does, and it works. And so whatever whatever happens, like at, at long last, she goes to bed the night before the race, able to move at least. She, you know, she's still tight and obviously totally distraught, but feels okay. Uh, wakes up, everything's really tight. And if you watch her before the race, knowing that, you can see how tight she is and how stiff. Mm. Uh, but she's like, this is the only chance I'm going to get. We're racing. So she enters the race, I think, maybe not sure she can finish even, but is mentally strong enough to kind of just shove that in the back of her mind and, and keep going. The games of the 23rd Olympiad. The 50 fall to their marks. And there you go. The first ever... Olympic Women's Marathon. These women have a dream to be the first in the first Olympic Women's Marathon. This event has been Avon's dream, and the Avon International Marathons gave women the opportunity they needed to prove themselves to the world and to the Olympic Committee. For them, the dream is about to become reality. For Avon, already has so joan benoy the american is not as favored i guess as greta weitz yeah and right from the beginning though sets the pace and and kind of gets ahead of the pack and they let her go thinking that she's gonna wilt right yeah. in the heat and they'll reel her back in yeah if you watch the race it, it's not that Joni is trying to make this huge breakaway early in the race it's not like she's just you know gone crazy like a bat out of hell she just sort of you know one minute she's like running next to them and the next minute she's like a half step ahead and what is interesting i think is that that's how Joni did her training runs when she ran with people and and what Joni found is that it wasn't a good idea for her to train with people because she just would always instinctively jump out like a half step ahead of them. And then they would probably match the pace and she would jump out another half step. And pretty soon they're, you know, they're pedal to the metal in the middle of a training run. Like, you, you know, you can't train like that for very long without breaking down. So, but in the race, like the, the first two miles are really easy. They're really slow. And my sense is that Joni just kind of her mind a little bit wandering. Suddenly she's going just a tiny bit faster. It's not like excessive. And she definitely expected them to follow. Like she keeps looking back, like what what are they doing? And the pace is still slow. Like when when she breaks away, she's running like two hour, 30 minute pace, right? And so that's, you know, for, for reference, her world record at the time was 222. So it's well within everybody's ability to run that. Uh, but Joni's looking back at them. And, and what's fascinating is that all the other women in the lead pack are looking at Greta. And they're watching Greta to see what she'll do. And Greta's strategy going into the race was, you know, to assume it would be really hot. And yes, to assume that she would be able to run down Benoit in the last six miles if it came to that. And so Greta lets her go. And 
the other women cue off of Greta. Partly, I think it you know it could be a wise tactical decision if you think Greta is a favorite, you 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 stick with Greta. But I think partly it they were all in such awe of Greta, like none of them had ever beaten her in a marathon. <laughs> it's like watching Kipchoge, you know, exactly. like, let's hang with him. You're just going to like, yeah, well, I'm not going ahead of him. (laughs) So Greta has her tactics, and I think Greta is very comfortable in her plan. Joni is just running how she feels. She's like, I'm not running that fast, so I'm just going to keep doing this. If they want to let me go, that's fine. But everybody else, you get a sense of a little bit of internal conflict. Like, we don't want to let Joni go, but if Greta's not going... Maybe we should stick with Greta. And so my my sense is that outside of Joni and Greta, there was a lot of wasted mental energy trying to decide what to do and wondering if you made the right call. And, you know, in a marathon, there's a lot of time for thinking, right? So, <laughs> so it's important to be in a good headspace the entire time. And I'm not sure the other competitors were. I think Greta Greta was and Joni was. I'm not sure the others totally were were comfortable with with the races that unfolded. And Joni, to her credit, just kept moving away, kept moving away, and it never got as hot as they expected. And Greta gave chase, but couldn't make enough of a dent in Joni's lead to really, really make a challenge. So it ended up being Joan Benoit alone for the last 23, 24 miles of the race. To Olympic glory. Yes. Oh my God. What a, what a feeling that must be, right? <laughs> it was a long run to glory. Well, that's what they tell me. Just joining us, Al Michaels, Marty LaCroix, Catherine Switzer here. Bill Rogers is out on a vehicle in front of the field. You're watching Joan Benoit running down Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica. Seven miles, elapsed time, 39 minutes, 36 seconds. There's the average, five minutes, 40 seconds per mile. She has surprised everybody by not only taking the lead, but taking, as you can see in that shot, a very large lead. Took it early on in the second mile, has extended it. Julie Brown seemed to be... You mentioned earlier that Greta placed second, got the silver medal, and then Rosa Mata was third place with the bronze. And there was just a coliseum full of just raving, enthusiastic people as those ladies entered. So the Coliseum, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it it's sunken into the ground a little bit. So they built it kind of into the ground. So the upper two levels are like above ground and then the lower level of the track is actually below ground. So to get from street level onto the track, like for the last lap of the marathon, you go down and then you curve through this tunnel under the stadium onto the track. And Joni says that, in that tunnel, she thought about stopping. <laughs> wow. And, and because she, she talked about introvert. She really is introvert and, and really, she knew what was coming. She knew the publicity and, and the media attention would be absolutely overwhelming. And so part of her was like, let's just stop here and enjoy the silence. Um, but <laughs> obviously, it, you know, it's, sometimes you have weird thoughts in the middle of a marathon. <laughs> 
And I was a little bit, but you know, she bursts out into the um, into the stadium. Uh, Catherine Switzer is one of the uh, color commentators for ABC doing the telecast, and she told me like it it was the hardest thing ever to keep her mind on the job. She was so overwhelmed by by seeing her dream, her vision come to fruition, and, and then to have an American to have Joni winning it. And yeah, you know, so there's like I don't know, sixty seventy thousand people absolutely screaming on their feet for Benoit and. She's so focused. It's not until she's 200 meters from the finish, like she's she's almost at the finish. She finally can take a deep breath, and she takes her hat off and starts waving. And and, and yeah, it's just, it's this incredible moment. It really is. You're right, Marty. It's beginning to hurt a lot right now. Those knees are feeling like glass as she's picking them up and putting them down. But it hurts a lot less when you're going to win the gold medal. That's I think for sure. She'll be running on air those last 500 meters. She'll have to be. She'll be making a left turn very shortly. There it is, she's about to go into the tunnel. Now the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight once again. What a moment for Joni and the thousands who are in the stadium recommend everyone read the book and also you can it's on youtube you can watch the race and i think watching it after you read the book would make it so much more meaningful because you get so invested in the lives of these runners and just how incredible it was to actually get to that point um it makes you appreciate it a lot more (laughs) well thank you guys yeah thank you for sharing this history it's such an important history that i think everyone needs to know not just runners Mm -hmm. Stephen, we appreciate you uh, sharing this on the podcast. And uh, if people want to connect with you and find out more about what you're up to and how to get a copy of the book, you have a website or anywhere we can send them. I am on Instagram. <laughs> Steve still runs. Um, I do try. It's <laughs> sometimes, but I'm still trying. Uh, so yeah, you can find me at Steve still runs on Instagram. And, and yeah, the book should be available wherever you prefer to buy your books. Um, or in fact, if you're a library person, it, it should be in the library too. So, um, so I hope everybody reads it and enjoys it and connect with me. Come find me. Well, thank you guys. It really a pleasure. Really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that stroll through history. We haven't done like a history-based episode in a while. And there's so much great history and so many inspiring stories in our sport. Such a huge endeavor of running that far is going to lend itself to a colorful history. Yeah, for sure. And we encourage people to go watch the clips on YouTube of that marathon. I was actually, when we were talking with Stephen Lane, he was talking about how he remembers watching it when he was a kid. And I was a bit younger than him, but I remember for, we didn't have a TV when I was growing up. 
my kids think I was raised in the dark ages. <laughs> um, but we would borrow a black and white TV for the Olympics, Summer Olympics. So we would like borrow it from my grandma for like two weeks. And I remember the 88 Olympics, especially, and we're watching a lot of the running events. And yeah, it was just, it's just super inspiring. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for being a listener. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't done that yet, let's make it official. And if we can help you in any way in your training goals, uh, reach out. We've got a contact form on our website. Or you can talk to our head coach, Nicole, about what you're training for and how we can help you. You can find us at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Marathon Academy. Keep running strong, and remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.